Chapter 8 of the book of Mark. This is the gospel of Mark. The, and uh, it's, uh, last week we, uh, I, we studied the, the story of the feeding of the 4,000. I'm just curious, just for, my, just for my own curiosity's sake, how many of you were surprised to find out it's not just the feeding of the 5,000, but there was another chance for Jesus to express his power in the feeding of the 4,000. Yeah, some of us, that's a, that, wow, wow, Jesus, you really are getting after it, you know? And uh, so after the feeding of the 5,000, beginning in verse 10, or excuse me, 4,000, feeding of the 4,000, uh, beginning in verse 10, let's read together. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and he came to the district of Delmanutha. Where in the world is Delmanutha? Well, truth is that there's some people, uh, scholars of the New Testament who don't even know. The fact is that, that it's not really clear, but if we look at a parallel passage, the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 15, we see that Jesus got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now, where in the world is Magadan? I don't know, and they don't know either. Except to say that Magadan was a region, and there is a specific city there that I think you will recognize it's Magdala, Magdala. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that doesn't sound familiar. Well, wait a second. There's a very significant person in the New Testament that came from the city of Magdala. Who is that? Mary, yes. Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. And uh, she was a very important person in the ministry of Jesus. We know that she was a woman of wealth and that she even helped finance some of the, some of the ministry of Jesus. Um, she was there at Jesus' crucifixion. She was the first person to see Jesus alive after having risen from the dead. That's an, that's an amazing thing of itself. Now, why is that important? Well, Magdala... Um, I mentioned that Mary was a woman of wealth. Magdala was a pretty big commerce area on the Sea of Galilee. Let's look at the map, if you will. Uh, you can see Magdala there on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples had, had traveled there after the feeding of the 4,000. Josephus, one of uh, the Jewish uh, historians in that time uh, records that about 30 years after Jesus' ministry, Magdala was a city, a bustling city of about 40,000 people. In that day and time, that's a really big place. This place was a place of commerce, as I mentioned before. They, uh, they processed fish there and uh, and most specifically, salted fish. And so Jesus comes to this place, and it's, and it's a big place. Lots and lots of people. His intention, I can venture to say, was to speak to a lot of people. 
It's interesting, you'll notice that Magdala is halfway between Tiberias and Capernaum. And that entire region is, is where Jesus was at work in his ministry. Many, many times uh, circulating through that entire area. Now, let's go on. Let's go on here. Um, reading together in Matthew, Matthew or excuse me, Mark chapter 8. Verse 11, and the Pharisees came out to be, and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody comes out just ready to argue? That's the situation Jesus encounters here in Magdala. I think his intention, again, was to, to connect with the people of Magdala. But the people that meet him first are the Pharisees. We learned a couple weeks ago that the Pharisees were, were headquartered in Jerusalem. This was further south, quite a distance away. And yet the Pharisees were there, and they came out to argue with him. And the scripture says here that they specifically came to test him. If you want to look back in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1 verse 13, we, we see the very same word, to test, but it's translated tempt in that, in that uh, uh, context or in that place there in Mark 1. It says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. It's the very same word that Mark uses in chapter 8, but there we have it translated as test. In each case, I think we can say with certainty that the intent of each party who came to tempt or test Jesus, whether it's Satan himself or the Pharisees, their intent was evil. If only they could get Jesus to, to do some kind of sign from heaven, he would align himself with the false prophets. How do I know that? Well, look at, um, if you would, I invite you even to turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13. It's way, way to the left in your Bible. Um, Near the, near the beginning of the Old Testament. And there we read, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign and a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. In other words, what's happening here is God is giving them a warning. There will be false prophets among you, and they will call you to serve other gods, and they will at times even come with the power to do signs and wonders. His admonition is this. You shall not listen to the words of that false prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments 
Listen to his voice. Serve him and cling to him. But that prophet, that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God. That's what the attempt is here in this section of of Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees. Now, it it does seem to be a bit of a... uh, 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 it's kind of an innocuous request, the, the request for a sign. What, what's at work here? The, the, this, this section uncovers the fact that this was not simply an innocent request. Though it looked like that on the surface, it was actually an insidious rerun of Satan's temptation to Jesus. And what is Jesus' response? Verse 12, sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Sighing deeply in his spirit. It's interesting that in Mark chapter 7, do you remember a couple weeks ago, we, we saw a similar phrase, Jesus sighed deeply before he healed the, the, uh, the um, deaf man. Do you remember that? And, and here we see it again, but it's a, it's, it's a different iteration of the word. This, this word here uh, simply means to sigh deeply, and I'd like to suggest that it's possible that Jesus is just... <sighs> Are you kidding me? I have a feeling that's what's going on. It's a sigh of disgust or, or a, a, a sigh of, of honest just grief. But there in, in Mark 7, that sigh, we likened it to um, a, a sigh that, that is more of a guttural, unutterable prayer. Kind of like uh, the, the, the work of the Spirit who, who groans with us in ways that we cannot understand even as he intercedes for us. It's, it, there is a difference here. Now there's a parallel passage in Matthew 16. And, and I'd like to read that for you. And it, 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 it uncovers perhaps a bit more of what was going on in this encounter. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up. This is Matthew 16, beginning in verse 1. They came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning... There will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. There we see the very same words. And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Previously in Matthew, 
in chapter 12, we see him see a similar situation where Jesus said a sign will not be given except the sign of Jonah. And he goes on to re, uh, reiterate what was going on with Jonah. How many of you remember Jonah? Yeah. This guy who received a call from God to go to the city of Nineveh, right? Nineveh was a wicked, wicked city. And his job was to call them to repentance. And so Jonah says, mm, I'm not sure I want to do that because I don't like those Ninevites. And instead of following the Lord's command, he hops on a boat and goes the opposite direction. Well, we all know the story, right? It, the, a storm comes up and... Uh, Jonah says, hey, guys, I'm responsible for this. Throw me overboard. And God sent a, a large fish. Some people say it's a whale. That's not what the scripture says, by the way. It's a, a big fish. And he swallows up Jonah. And he, he carries Jonah back to uh, Nineveh and barfs him up on the beach right there. <laughs> and, and Jonah decides, well, I better, okay, God, you got my attention. I'm going to follow through on what you command. He goes and, and what, he preaches to the city of Nineveh, calls them to repentance, and guess what happens? They repent. Wow. And God doesn't bring his judgment on them as he, Jonah expected. And so what does Jonah do? Does he rejoice? No. He pouts. He pouts. He sits under a tree and, or under a plant, and he pouts about the fact that the Lord changed his mind and, and allowed the, the city to, to go on because they repented. He even pouts over the fact that the plant that God brought up to provide him shade dies. There in this, Jesus recounts that with a little more specificity in chapter 12 of Matthew and says that, that, that this generation of of Pharisees will not will stand in, in the judgment one day along the side of the people of Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh, their experience will condemn even the Pharisees of this day because behold, he says, one greater than Jonah is here. He's speaking of himself. And these Pharisees are 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 pushing Jesus aside and not recognizing him for who he is. And therefore, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So, so what, again, what's the issue about seeking for a sign? Well, it's because it's, the, it's, it's indicative of defiant disbelief. It's not, it's, it's, it's this statement of saying, I will not believe. It's just defiance. It's not even a, a matter of convince me. Convince me with another sign. Do you hear the, the insidious nature of that request? Again, it's similar to Matthew uh, chapter 4. There we see the, the uh, the testing of Jesus in more detail than Mark brings it to us in chapter 1. 
Matthew chapter 4 records that this, this conversation, if you will, be between Satan himself and Jesus in the wilderness. And the first temptation starts like this. Satan says, if you are the son of God, if, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. The second temptation is similar. He takes Jesus to a high place and, and uh, he says, if, if you are the son of God, throw yourself off of here because the scripture says the angels would take charge of you lest you strike your, your foot against a stone. The third temptation is a little different. In the first two, we see Satan, Satan goading Jesus and and questioning his identity as the son of God. The third temptation is different in that it, he, he says he takes him to a place where he can see the broad expanse and he says, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. As if it belonged to him anyway. That progression of temptation is... I think, significant. It's challenging Jesus' identity at the beginning and then challenging his desire for or trying to tempt him into desiring, quote-unquote, power or control. Jesus, however, responds, (laughs) don't bother Because the scripture says you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. And Jesus, and and the enemy or Satan left him at that point. There's this seductive thought in that third temptation. There's challenge at the front and then there's seduction in the third. And I think we, uh, we can say that that's the typical tactic of a bully. A bully will come and say with a blustery challenge. And that's what we see in the first two. And the third, we see this attempt to seduce. Attempt to seduce. And both are are at work to manipulate. To manipulate Jesus. Well, I have to tell you, there's a principle at work here. And that is Jesus will not be manipulated. You can count on that. That's a spiritual principle. It's a spiritual principle of prayer. Did you know that you cannot manipulate God into doing something for you if you promise that you'll do something for him? It's not how he works. That's, that's, uh, this is a principle of prayer. It's also a, a principle of Christian leadership. Christian leadership does not take us or move us in a certain direction by manipulation. I think some of you may have, have experienced that before, but it's not, that's not the leadership that God intends. Rather, his leadership is going to lead us into truth, is it not? Not into error. 
And thirdly, this is a, a principle of Christian living. We don't attempt to manipulate one another by, by questioning their identity nor tempting them to desire something more than what they may have. We, that's not how we are called to, to connect and interact with one another. Rather, we are called to live in honesty with one another, live in vulnerability to one another. Look at verse 13 there in the chapter, chapter 8 of Mark. Verse 13, and leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Verse 14 is curious to me. And they had forgotten to take bread. They only had one loaf. Do you think that the disciples were just unprepared? That, is that what's going on here? I mean, give me a break. They just, they just fed 4,000 people. And how many baskets did they come up with at the end? Leftovers. Were they just unprepared here? Well, maybe. I'll give you that. It might be that they were simply unprepared. But perhaps we should take note of the fact that their departure was honestly rather abrupt. Jesus simply cuts off the Pharisees and calls the disciples to get in to the boat. Look at that in verse 13. And leaving them, he again embarked uh, and went away to the other side. So... This is right after the, the, uh, the, the statement of the Pharisees to show us a sign. And Jesus says, I'm not going to show you a sign. It's an adulterous generation that requests that. And he just turns around and leaves. Is Jesus rude? I mean, is he rude to the, the Pharisees? I don't think so. I think rather he's discerning. He's discerning. Sometimes discernment calls us to simply discontinue a conversation. To walk away from needless controversy. To end a fruitless dialogue. In Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus is, is modeling discernment to us. He's saying, what kind of attention do you give to those who simply wish to occupy your time, your attention, your energy, and even more? Simply to deceive or undermine or manipulate you. Jesus' next words are pretty revealing. Look at, at verse 15. And he was giving orders to them, saying. He was giving orders. And then the disciples are talking about bread. Is he, he ordering up a sandwich? 
No, he's not. Is he giving a military order? Guys, I need for you to do this. No, he's not. He's simply standing in his authority. This word giving orders here in the Greek means to set apart. He's acknowledging the fact that he is their teacher, he is their master, he is their rabbi, and he's giving them instruction. He's giving them orders, and what does he say? Verse 15, watch out, beware, be on the lookout. There's danger out there. There's danger in this moment. There's danger to be aware of. And what is that danger? It's the leaven, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, what is leaven? How many of you bake bread? Any bakers out here? Yeah. And you use, what do you use to help the bread rise? Yeast. That's what we're talking about, leaven. It's something that, that uh, helps yeast or helps the bread rise. How does that happen? What's going on in that process? Well, if you, if you uh, it's very interesting. There, it's also used in, in another process to brew a significant drink that is enjoyed in our culture. Remember that? You know what that is? Beer. Beer, yeah. There is a fermentation process going on. That fermentation really is a decaying, it's a decaying process, and it, and it puts off uh, gases, and that's why the bread rises, because the gases are, are building up and being expressed into the dough. Um, this fermentation process happens also when um, something dies. You ever had a... You ever gone out to your garage and smelled something kind of weird? What is going on? That stinks. What is that? What is that? It's a mouse, but it's not alive. It's dead. It's decaying. It's fermenting, and it's giving off these noxious gases. That's what we smell, and that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, be aware, beware of this, this decaying process that is going on with the Pharisees and with Herod. These, these, this desire for more and more proof isn't simple skepticism. It is a process at work where only more and more and more proof is needed. And it's a process that will, honestly, it's a process that uncovers the reality of death. It gives this noxious smell off. And it invades and it pervades. It, it, it becomes something that gets into every nook and cranny of our lives if we're not careful. Now, that... I would say, is unhealthy skepticism. Show us another sign. Show us another sign. Is there such a thing as healthy skepticism? I would say yes. What's the difference? Healthy skepticism says, 
I don't, I don't get it. I need to investigate that further. I don't, I, I'm not sure that's true. I need to find out for myself. And I'm going to pursue finding the truth. And finding the truth helps me discover where I need to be in, in my understanding. Unhealthy skepticism, on the other hand, already has it figured out, already drawn their conclusion, and this unhealthy skeptic is there looking for anything that will satisfy or verify that already foredrawn conclusion. You hear the difference? There's a lot of that going on in our culture right now, isn't there? Our kids... Our kids every day in school, when they go to science class, biology class, they're, they're encountering that very same thing. An unhealthy skepticism that has foredrawn a conclusion that though science itself tells the, the, the outcome is different, science itself proves that evolution is not the truth. You know Why? Because nothing comes from nothing. Something doesn't come from nothing. And when you get down to the bottom of it, it is unhealthy skepticism seeking to prove some, a foredrawn conclusion. And that's what's going on here with the, with the Pharisees. You're going to find what you're looking for, basically. Now, what characterizes a Pharisee? I think there's three things that really stand out. Number one, legalism. Uh, religious law keeping. Number two, judgmentalism. Condemnation of, of moral or religious outsiders. People not like themselves. And number three, control. A, con a, a consolidation of power and authority that leads to spiritual abuse. The, the word Pharisees comes from uh, a word that simply means uh, to be separated or a separated one. And so what we see with the Pharisees is that they have separated themselves from other people and they have sought to impose legalism on them in order for them to control them. And in that control, they, they fire back judgment all the time because people are unable to live up to the law that they have put on them. The same is true of Herod. This, this leaven of Herod is the very same thing. Now, who is Herod? Well, Herod was the Roman ruler of that day, right? Only his leaven... It's the very same thing, but his legalism has to do with secular laws. Just looking for an opportunity for you to mess up. And it, it includes judgment. Judgment of anyone who is outside of the, the, uh, the cultural norms of that day, the societal norms of that day. In fact, if you look at Roman history, Rome was built and run by basically a, uh, a system of slavery. 
And anyone who was not a Roman citizen was, was uh, put outside. And their control, the control was rigid, was it not? It was control that was, instead of uh, uh, consolidation of power that led to spiritual abuse, it was consolidation of power and authority that led to very often physical abuse and outright brutality. Both of these are human systems designed to consolidate and maintain power. Controlling and dominance enslaving, enslaving others. The two are not only evil at their origin, but they are, they are totalitarian in their exercise. In other words, they, they, impose, they impose upon others. Jesus, however, brings something that is completely upside down from that kind of of, of uh, s- governmental systems. He brings into us the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God characterized by? It's, it's, handing, it's handing power and authority to you to make the choices. It's not other people making choices for you. It's you making choices for yourselves and choosing to submit your life to God and walking in the freedom that comes from that rather than the enslavement of it. This is one of these nuggets I want you to take home today. If you discern that you are imprisoned or controlled, or enslaved by a religious system, or a social system, or an organization unable to live in freedom. And that's the freedom to and the freedom not to, the ability to make a choice. If you are living in a system that takes that kind of freedom away. Jesus invites you today to simply turn around, walk away, and follow him into freedom. Let's look at verse 16. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large basketful of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. I said seven both times, didn't I? It was 12 baskets of the, of, on the 5,000. It was seven on the four. Sorry about that. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand understand? 
Jesus wants them to elevate their awareness, their point of view. And he wants that for us too. But the disciples are fixated. They're fixated on their failure to bring enough bread. And what that reveals is the dullness of their own hearts after being the witnesses of these amazing miracles and even participating in those miracles, they are still deaf and blind to the, to the spiritual truth that is here. And I have to ask, how often are we fixated on our own failures and are completely deaf and blind by what God, uh, to what God has done? And what he is doing among us and in us and through us and round about us. Even, even after we've been eyewitnesses to his amazing provision. It's interesting to me that Jesus here is, he's not short with the, with the disciples like he was with the Pharisees. Rather, he's very patient. He doesn't condemn them. Instead, he simply asks them nine questions. Do you remember? Do you remember? He repeats the details of the broken loaves and the leftover baskets. And slowly their eyes will see and their ears will hear as they remember. As the light begins to dawn, Jesus leaves them with this question. How, how is it now that you don't understand? What does Jesus want them to understand? He wants them to understand that there is a much bigger picture than their immediate circumstance. And he wants that for us too. There is a much bigger picture than our immediate circumstance. God is at work in you. He's at work in your family. He's at work in our church. He is at work in our nation and in our world. Both to meet, both to meet honest need and to reveal himself. To meet practical and physical and mental and spiritual and emotional needs on both the tiny micro level and the macro level and everything in between. In addition to that, he is about wanting to reveal himself to them. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the name of God is is something that is unable to be spoken because it is so holy, so set apart. And so, so in the Hebrew scripture, we, we see the name of God written in an unspeakable way. And today, we, 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 we bring our own way of trying to figure out how to say this to it. Um, the, the transliteration is YHWH. How does that sound? No, think about it. 
How does YHWH sound? unspeakable we put vowels in there and we say Yahweh because we want to understand it another word in in older English that was was translated in this same way was Jehovah you may have heard that word before and throughout the Hebrew scriptures we see God revealed as Jehovah Jireh have you heard that word before What does that mean? It means that the Lord is our provider. Jehovah Rophe. The Lord is our healer. Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is our banner or our victory. Jehovah Shalom. It not only means that God is our peace, but he is our fulfillment He is our completion. Jehovah Ra'ah. The Lord, our shepherd, our faithful shepherd, not only leading us, but caring for us every step of the way. Jehovah Tzitkanu. The Lord, our righteousness. You see, God himself has revealed that he is our righteousness, not what we do. Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is here. He's always present. And he's pervasive, just like like light reaching into every nook and cranny. He is present. That's what Jesus wants these disciples to see. All this and so much more is what he wants us to understand as well. And in the context of this passage, he wants us to stop giving our ear to the skeptic who simply wishes to undermine our belief and cause us to disbelieve the clear evidence of God's reality, who he is and what he has done. I'm going to dare to go into this next section because I believe the Lord has something very important for us. Look at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. Now quickly, where is Bethsaida? If we could have the map again, Bethsaida is way up to the north of the Sea of Galilee. It, you see it, um, it's, it's kind of cut off on that, on that map. You see the bottom half of the word Bethsaida up there? So they've, they've sailed from Magdala over to 
the area of Bethsaida. And there Jesus meets this blind man brought to him. And those who bring him implore Jesus to touch him. Now the word brought and the word implore are the very same words that were used in chapter 7 with the healing of the deaf man. They, they brought him, they carried him, and they invoked Jesus. They prayed, Lord, would you please touch him? And, but the word touch here is different than the word that is used in chapter 7. This word here means to fasten to. To fasten to. And it's, and it's fascinating to me that it also means to kindle or to set a fire. Both meanings are there. To fasten to and to set a fire or to kindle a fire. Jesus, Jesus' touch is more than laying his hand on the man simply to bless him. He's attaching himself to this man to kindle a fire in him. The implication is this. Connection means setting a process in motion. A process that will consume and transform to set on fire. Verse 23, and taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. It's, a, it's very similar to what we saw in chapter 7. He took him away from the crowds and gave him a very personal moment, giving his full attention to the man. And again, verse 23, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? It's similar to this, the healing of the deaf man in that Jesus touched him and he spit, used his saliva in this, this healing. But this personal touch, the laying of his hands upon him means that he imposed, he imposed his will upon this man. He brought to him his healing touch and imposed it upon him. He imposed his healing power and added sight to his blind eyes. All of this was at the invitation of his friends and presumably the willingness of the man. And Jesus says, do you see anything? And this is a, a curious thing. This is the only place in the Gospels that we see that the healing touch of Jesus sets in motion a process instead of an event. And it's the only time that Jesus asks the recipient of his touch what the result of his touch is. Verse 24, and he, and he looked up and he said, I see men. I see them as like trees walking around. Note here again, this man's blindness was probably because of, of uh, a disease process or maybe an injury, because how, how else would he know how to compare what he saw to a tree? Verse 25, and again, he laid his hands on his eyes and looked intently 
And he looked intently and was restored and began seeing everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. What are we to gain from this unique account of Jesus' healing? Well, number one, I think this. Jesus is free to do as he wishes. I mean, we can, we can try, but we cannot fit God into our neat and tidy little boxes of how we think he is going to work. Yes, yes, there are patterns. We can say God very often works in this kind of way. We can see those kind of patterns at work, but he may not work in the same way every time. And we need to be careful in our expectations and our judgment even of how he works. Number two, Jesus' touch may deliver a singular request like healing. But when he lays his hands upon us, we can expect the beginning of a deeper work, a deeper process that results in the setting on fire of our souls. Until we are completely consumed, absolutely transformed by his purposes. Number three, our destination after Jesus lays his hands on us in that way, our first destination should be our home. The place where we are most intimate, most revealed, most needed. The issue is this. If our life at home, where we are, are most apt to uncover the core of who we really are, if our life at home does not match our life at church or our life at work, there is still more transformation needed. There's still more needed. Number four, much of our blindness after having seen clearly previously is due, honestly, to difficulties that we experience, that we've endured. Maybe it's trauma. Maybe it's judgment. Maybe it's loss. Maybe it's even betrayal or an accident that's happened or a disease. Maybe it's sin. All of these difficulties can create blindness in us. But there is hope for healing and restoration when we allow Jesus to set his process of healing in motion in our lives. And number five, there is such a thing as partial healing, partial transformation. And Jesus will ask us very plainly, what is our honest assessment of his work in our lives? If there, if there is a point at, when, at which we do not see clearly or don't recognize the transformation to be complete, he is willing. He is willing to complete that transformation upon our honest report. So what's the application? 
What difference does it make that we've come through this, these two passages this morning? What does Jesus want us to do with this information? How will it affect our lives as individuals and our life together? Well, both accounts deal with the impairment of our senses, both physical and spiritual. And that impairment often happens as a result of something in our lives, something that has has wounded us, something that has changed us, or by an infection process that's been put in place because we've bought into that unhealthy skepticism. And that unhealthy skepticism, quite honestly, might be connected to that, that awful event in our lives. Some of us have experienced hurt, woundedness at the hands of of people that we've trusted. Maybe they've been a family member. Maybe they've been part of our church family. And those wounds have set off in us this skepticism that wants to, that, that, that is, is just asking and asking for more and more proof. And the result of that is a death process in our lives. Let me say this. If you see legalism or judgmentalism or a desire to control or manipulate at work in any place in your life, whether it be at home, in your family, in the church, or work, if you see that happening, or you experience that personally, Jesus invites you to walk away, make a change, and follow him. Don't stay stuck. Don't stay stuck in that. How do you do that? I mean, seriously, how do you do that? If you're dealing with that kind of stuff, you start by turning around and making a change. Ask Jesus to lay hold of you, to attach himself to you in such a way that the outcome will be he will set you on fire for him. And the outcome will be the destruction of those things that have have blinded us and a complete transformation. You can start your new life where you are and where you've seen the reality of that. No more pretending in public. No more performing. But allowing Jesus to get a hold of you right where you are. In whatever circumstance so that he might set his healing process in motion that will result in the consuming of your whole life with a passion for him. Very often we are are bound up in fear when it comes to making changes in our lives. And Jesus says, no, wait a second. 
you're, you're not imprisoned by these things. Sometimes fear keeps us in that prison. You're not in that prison because you are his child and he has set you free. Would you stand with me? We're just going to sing the chorus of this one song, just the chorus. But I want us to get it inside of us because it is the testimony of grace manifest to us. As his children, God has set us free. And he calls us to walk in the fullness of that freedom. I'm no longer a slave to fear, is what we're going to sing. I'm a child of God. I belong to him. He has set his hand upon me and made me his own. And in so doing, he's putting in place a process that will transform us.